0: Welcome. This is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starnes. Excited to have today uh, with me William Hastings. His debut novel, The Howling Ages, was published by Concord E-Press, a division of Concord Free Press, in the fall. He's also the author of the nonfiction book The Hard Way and editor of Stray Dogs, writing from the other America. His shorter work can be found in Cape Cod Noir, Boulevard, Writer's Tribe Review, The American Book Review, and Hanging Loose. He was a contributing editor at Boulevard and was a fiction editor of Ping Pong, the Henry Miller Memorial Libraries magazine. He is a 2013 Pushcart nominee. In addition to writing, he works as a farmhand and a bookseller. And the bookselling at Farley's Bookshop, a great independent bookstore in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And I want to get into uh, talking about bookselling near the end of this podcast. But first, we're going to get into um, some of his work and another writer. I wanted to start out
1: with, uh, William, have you ever stolen a book from a library? No, I haven't. I uh, There was times in my life where I, I so needed libraries because I couldn't afford to go to a bookstore and buy books that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm haunting these places daily or every couple of days. It never even occurred to me to steal books from them because I'm just pulling them out so often maybe yeah. I would have felt guilty too but
0: yeah well you're you're, you're an upstanding citizen so you did did didn't you once get kicked out of uh, Victor Hugo's house in Paris for trying to sneak in without paying
1: that's right I uh there was a group of schoolgirls that was going in I had no money and I wanted to go see the inside so I tried sneaking in at the back of this line of Catholic schoolgirls but I was not a Catholic schoolgirl and so got booted did you get arrested for that or didn't no, they... they just said go okay oh they let you in no, no, not – the hand went up before the uh, – Go go away from yeah. here. Get out. get exactly. out. So uh,
0: did you ever get back in at another point? No. no. Okay. Well, may- maybe next time. Well, I have to confess, you're a more upstanding uh, citizen than I am, that uh, I did once steal a library book from my high school. And nice. I was 16 years old. It was uh, Cedartown, Georgia, and I spent a lot of time hanging around during the days in school when I could in the library. And there's a book of 50 Modern American and British Poets uh, from 1920 to 1970, edited by Louis Untermeyer. And I fell in love with this book. And it was my first really introduction to T.S. Eliot, um, Wallace Stevens, E.E. Cummings, Ezra Pound, Marion Moore, some other poets that I really grew to admire and uh, continue to. So when I finished high school, some point before I finished, I walked off with it. Now, I didn't feel quite too – I felt a little bit of guilt. But it had yeah. only been checked out one time in about 10 years. It wasn't the most popular book on the shelves at Cedartown High School. So I kept it. Now, I did uh, reconcile this about five years ago, so you don't think less of me, that I um, went back and spoke to a class at this school. And I, bought, I went and looked at their poetry, and I bought them a couple of Norton anthologies of poetry to make up for it. So I think I spent about maybe... 75 100 bucks my my daughter pointed out that uh the f- fines would have been a lot more than that but they seemed to uh to accept that
1: guilt assuaged yeah
0: but one thing another poet that i learned about through this book that who has stayed with me um is jim harrison yeah and i remember being 16 or 17 and this poem a uh, drinking song real, really appealed to me so it's a pretty short one. i'm going to read it here quickly and i want to talk to you about harrison because i know you wrote a review but A drinking song is the name of the poem. I want to die in the saddle, an enemy of civilization. I want to walk around in the woods, fish, and drink. I'm going to be a child about it, and I can't help it. I was born this way, and it makes me very happy to fish and drink. I left when it was still dark and walked on the path to the river, the yellow dog, where I spent the day fishing and drinking. After she left me and I quit my job and wept for a year, and all of my poems were born dead, I decided I would only fish and drink. Water will never leave earth, and whiskey is good for the brain. What else am I supposed to do in these last days but fish and drink? In the river was a trout, and I was on the bank, my heart in my chest, clouds above me. She was in New York forever, and I, fishing and drinking. So I think you know those days in high school. I kind of wish that I was out wandering around the woods, fishing and drinking, and dr- yeah. dreaming of some woman gone yeah. off to New York. Yeah. But uh, that was connected I with. And it's still a poem that uh, you know, thirty some years later, I, I admire. So talk to me about. You wrote a review for the American mm-hmm. Book Review about uh, Harrison and his last book, Dead Man's Float. Sure. That sure. ran. I guess he died in March 16, and you had a story in there about how you found out about he he had died and. Where you kept one of his books at the time?
1: Yeah, usually kept. Uh, there was a couple of poems in Dead Man's Float and Songs of Unreason. The book that came before that really blew me away, and I used to keep a couple copies under the tractor seat. So if I had some time, you know, to put a my foot up and take a quick ten minute break while I was working, I could have something to read. Uh, that review came about because Joe Haskey, a fine novelist from from Michigan, he had heard, uh, you know. He knew Harrison had died, and Dead Man's Load had sort of just come out. And the American Book Review is a wonderful—it's a—it's an amazing magazine, but it it has the tendency to be stuffy at times. And Joe knew that you can't review a Jim Harrison collection of poetry, particularly with him dying in some sort of dry academic manner. And so he called me and asked if I would do it, and I said, "Perfect." You know, uh, there were some things to say, so I tried to tackle. Ch- as much as I could about my feelings about his, his work in that, that book, but it's a special one. There's, there's a particular, I mean, he's at the end of his life and he's writing as beautifully and as forcefully as he was in his early years. It's a remarkable thing to witness with a poet. You know, a lot of, a lot of people can't hang with that type of force for as long as he did. And he, it's, it's a, it's a profound book. It's a beautiful book.
0: Yeah, well, no, I like that you had the book under the tractor seat yeah. and uh, some uh, Ziploc bags.
1: I believe was that. Yeah, it keeps them dry. Yeah, you know, definitely get caught out in rainstorms sometimes. So.
0: Yeah. Now, was the Dead Man's Float published uh, posthumously?
1: I believe it came out like a few weeks before he died, okay. or they were almost simultaneously. If my 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 memory serves me correct, um, I I don't remember. My, oh. my memory is telling me that I read the book before he died um, and was keeping it with me all the time. And then I had heard that he had died. Okay. Well, but I, I don't remember now. It's a bit foggy. Okay, sure. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that that was the sequence. All right. Now, you, you describe him, you
0: say, Jim Harrison wasn't an e-reader poet. Talk to me about what you mean by that.
1: Well, you get the sense when you read his, his books, whether it's the fiction or the poetry, that these poems and the stories—they had to be written. You know, there's this necessity to the the writing. That that if he if he doesn't get it down on the page, he's not going to be right. You know, it's an essential act for him. Um, I look at I look at e-readers and I look at a lot of the quantity of poetry being released in a digital form. It's just it's waste and it, it it's wasted words. It's wasted effort. Um, it's wasted time reading it. It's bad, you know, and you don't get the sense of, of it's an overused word now because of how we approach talking about writing, particularly in graduate schools, but the word craft, you know, craftsmanship, it's a manuscript, right? It's made with the hands manual. So when I, when I read Harrison's poems, I get this sense that there's that force and this necessity to make with his hands, this work, uh, that's just incompatible with the ease of disposing, you know, information that you get on e-readers and computers and so forth. Yeah. You know, well, I like the review too, that you finished that
0: here's to poets that write outside that, I mean, he was definitely a writer of the land and a man who, you know, as I wrote about, uh, fished and drank and Absolutely. didn't spend all his time, uh, I think as you say in here, you know, writing poems in between teaching classes. That's
1: right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, I was trying to play on the word outside. He, he is outside physically in a lot of his, his work, but he also stood outside, you know. I mean, he was successful writing for Warner Brothers. There was Legends of the Fall, of course, and Wolf. Um, but he was an outsider artist. He was not a mainstream writer, you know, and he, he wrote what he wanted to write without concern for the market, uh, it's I think important.
0: He, I think he's one of the very few and maybe the most successful at being a great poet and a great fiction writer. Oh, yeah. And not just, you know, a f- like, yeah. You know, I think of James Dickey. I mean, Deliverance is an amazing novel and he, he was he wrote a, mm-hmm. a lot of great poetry. But I don't know if his fiction holds up to, you know, I mean, Harrison wrote, um, you know, 11 novels, seven volumes of novellas. And then 13 collections of poetry. Yeah. And he Problem was really artists, good on both sides essays, of yeah. the and I can't think of anybody else who is that good. And I mean, I can think of writers that I would put up there with him as fiction writers or as poets. But on both sides, I, I don't uh, I don't know. It's
1: interesting. You know, what you see is people devoting themselves. It's so hard to do one. Well, so you, you decide early. I think th- this is this is the sound I'm hearing in my head. It's prose, you know, or or it's poetry. And then you turn your life over to that. But I think with him, it it was writing. You know, he, he fell in love with writing. Um, and the the sides of him and this this just voluminous personality and, and psyche and mindset, you know, it, it needed more turf than than prose could, could allow him or poetry could allow him, you know. But he he was always going back and forth between the forms. The books came out, you know, one after the other, alternating. It's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, and he didn't teach that. He taught a little bit, but got turned Barry off Irving, by yeah. uh, teaching, yeah. and uh, you know, made his made his uh, living as a writer, and that's all, all he did. interesting in the uh, shape of the journey, um, the select selected poems that came out, or I guess the collection, maybe fifteen years ago. In the introduction, he talks about uh, the, this book is the portion of my life that means the most to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written a goodly number of novels and novellas, but they sometimes. I'm quoting him here. They sometimes strike me as extra, burly flesh on the true bones of my life, though a few of them approach, a few of them approach some of the conditions of poetry. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder if this is sort of an admission here that he likes writing poetry or thinks of himself as a poet more. or You, know, well, you I, don't have to choose, I guess.
1: No, I, I don't think you do, but I, I definitely, having read his memoir and having read his two collections of um, food-related essays, The Raw and the Cooked and The Really Big Lunch, you— that's what he set out to do is be a poet. And I think the fiction came sort of almost by accident. I, I believe he was laid up on his back. He injured his back in a serious fall and was pushed to, you know, he wrote Wolf then. Um You can make a living at writing fiction if you do it a certain way. And I, you know, he wasn't going to teach, but he wasn't going to do construction either. So. All right. Well, what's one what of your favorite poems that, that uh, he has? And would you like to read one? Sure. There, there's quite a few, but, in that same collection, The Shape of the Journey, from his very first book, it's, it's one of my favorite poems of his. It's called Lyle's River. And it. every time I read it, it, it's all of Harrison in one spot for me, you know. Lyle's River. Dust followed our car like a dry brown cloud. At the river we swam, then in the canoe passed downstream toward Manton. The current carried us through cedar swamps, hot fields of marsh grass, where deer watched us and the kill deer shrieked. We were at home in a thing that passes, and that night, camped on a bluff, we ate eggs and ham and three small trout. We drank too much whiskey and pushed a burning stump down the bank. It cast hurling shadows, leaves silvered and darkened. The crash and hiss woke up a thousand birds. Now, tell me, other than lying between some woman's legs, what joy have have you had since that equaled this?
0: Yeah, thanks for reading that. Like the, uh, I, I just love that. Yeah, where deer watched us and the killed deer shrieked. Mm. That's a great, uh, a great line. And
1: you know, uh, you get the sense when you hear it and you read that poem, he he lived that. You know, these aren't animals he's pulling out of a field guide. But there's always it's not my problem with so much of the poetry I read now coming in on small presses or in the lit mags is it's too self referential. It's solipsistic. So this is obviously about. Him, But yet there's this constant reach in his work for something much bigger. And, you know, it's 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 not just a night on a river. Um, There's a big, vast, epic quality to it. That's that's rather beautiful.
0: Yeah. Did you ever have a chance to hear him read or meet him or see him? No, I I didn't meet him, but I saw him read once at the Story Prize in New York. Uh, The summer he didn't die was nominated. It didn't win, but they had the writers there that read at the New School. And uh, he was like, you know, I guess this was, you know, fifteen years ago. And he's a big guy. You know, he had a glass eye, and he walked with a cane. And uh, he's like, kind of like an old pirate. And uh, he's really charming. as he read, though, he seemed to get tired of, you know, the act of. He seemed sure. to almost think standing up and reading your work to people is sort of an artificial, phony act and he just stopped and he said, oh, and it just goes on from there, blah, blah, blah. And he sat down and this is at the story prize in a theater Perfect. of, you know, like a thousand people. Perfect. And, uh, it, it was very funny. It was very funny. Well, you mentioned the food writing, mm. um, didn't he, I think I read in one of the obituaries that at one point he ate 144 oysters Something in like one that. sitting. He,
1: he writes about it and, uh, it's in, it's not a really big lunch. It's in the other one, the wrong, the cooked.
0: Okay. Yep.
1: Some oh. legendary large, large meals. Yeah, I
0: haven't read the 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 food writing. I you should, should. The should. brilliant.
1: It's yeah. really brilliant. Yeah. And a lot of the pretentious food stuff you read in the various food magazines and stuff. He just lays to waste. It, they're wonderful books. Some of his best writing, but just wonderful. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, you consider like the amount that he ate and drank and continued to smoke. That it's yeah. a, he, he made it to seventy eight. So Phenomenal. that's a pre, that's a pretty good run. Yeah, that's a pretty good run. I want to get into your novel, the howling ages. Uh, We're here with William Hastings and howling ages uh, came out in October. And it's a story of Thomas, an American teacher and a young father who leaves his wife and child to go to Kuwait. He doesn't leave them, uh, leave them, but he, he goes to Kuwait to teach and stays with them to make money. He can't earn at home to support the family. He's a character is like full of yearning and desire develops a complicated and dangerous relationship with a woman who's also an immigrant in Kuwait who's forced to turn to prostitution to earn a living. Uh, Their story intertwines with a high-ranking Kuwaiti police officer. I hope I got the, that's a, you know, summarizing a novel is never an easy thing to do. So I hope that uh, does it justice because there's a lot going on in this book. But tell us about these characters of Thomas and uh, Lynn is the woman's name and Nasser, who's a police officer and, Tell us about these characters and how this setting connects with your own experience, and yeah. Uh, you know, also, I mean, sort of how the
1: issue of the need to make more money pushes this protagonist, Thomas. Sure. Uh, between 2008 and 2009, I lived in Kuwait. I lived in the neighborhood that the novel is set in, and at some point, I don't I don't remember when, but we were in my friend and I, a Georgianian friend I taught with. We were in a shisha cafe A shisha cafe is there's different sort of gradations of these. There's, there's sort of high class ones where you'll see them in malls, shopping malls or the the really nice restaurants. You can go and you call for a pipe of tobacco and you can sit there, you know, it's like being in a, a bistro or something in Paris, except there's no alcohol, you know, and all classes of, of people in Kuwait will go to these things. But the neighborhood cafes are called Sha'abi, and that means, loosely translated, of of the common people. And the neighborhood that I lived in, Hawali, is a a working-class neighborhood. It is all immigrant labor. It was a Palestinian neighborhood. 400,000 Palestinians lived in it until the Gulf War. When the Gulf War kicked off, the PLO backed Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. And in retaliation for that once Kuwait was liberated, the Palestinians were flushed out, either forcibly, they were executed, or they fled. Uh, And there were some remnant pockets of Palestinians still in Hawali, but by and large, they were gone. And that vacuum was filled by Egyptians, Syrians, Jordanians, Afghanis, Iraqis, Nepalese, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans. I mean, it was this incredible neighborhood. Most of the people I worked with in the the American and British expat community did not like being in Hawaii. It was, there's not, there's no English being spoken. The restaurants don't have menus, you know, it's, it's a neighborhood place. Um, But I loved it. And I didn't travel on a one-way ticket 8,000 miles to go eat at Johnny Rockets every Friday and then go to one of these other teachers' homes and watch some bootleg American movie, which is by and large the social life that the teachers I worked with led. So I spent my nights in the shisha cafes and I'm hanging out in this one behind our apartment. And I remember looking around and thinking, we're all in the same boat. You know, I had come all this way to make money that I could not have made in the United States. And though my situation was obviously very, very different than... Like my friend Usman, who was the the waiter at the shisha cafe I went to every day, he lived in a corrugated tin shack above the cafe. And if he made $20 a month, it was a big deal. But but you got this sense being in the neighborhood that none of these people were from there. And we had all come to Kuwait to, to make this money that we couldn't make at home. And on the backside of the shisha cafe was an illegal calling center. So... Instead of using calling cards, people would set up these rooms with a dock of phones in the wall. And you can go and you could pay a flat fee and call Jordan or call Palestine or wherever your family was and and talk to your family. And the place was just constantly busy. And it's heartbreaking to see it. You know, I, I didn't have a kid at the time. I wasn't married. But it was just heartbreaking to think about all these people who were separated from their families, sending money back so their kids could do whatever Reminded me of Brazilians I'd worked with on the Cape who were doing the same to send money back to their kids in Brazil and so forth. And so the novel sort of really grew out of that feeling, you know, um, that there's this whole. And it's everywhere, really. This is just one neighborhood, but this is this is all over the United States. It's all over the world. People leaving to have to go to pursue things that they can't create for themselves because of the way we set up our, our economic system. And it was, it was just heartbreaking to watch and be a part of. And so the, the novel grew out of that feeling. Um, Lynn in the book is a very specific human being. You know, she is that she's a character in a novel, but she's a lot of women I got to know, um, in that neighborhood, women whom had come to work as maids in the Kuwaiti homes and found the situation so intolerable, intolerable, they fled, or their time in the whatever home was up and they couldn't leave the country they didn't have enough money and so they turned to prostitution or being a maid or whatever a lot of maids supplement their income income through prostitution it's just they're not making a lot of money you know so on the one hand each of those three characters that the book centers around Nasser being the policeman they're they're very specific to the book as as any novel is you know, but at the same time you're trying to get onto paper these things that you saw and felt and were a part of, and so they're also there they're also mixtures of of people I knew and, and so forth,
0: yeah, and the title of this novel comes from uh, Jack London's uh That's Call right. of the wild That's right. which is a novel that has meant meant a lot to me for a long time and uh tell me about that maybe if you don't mind reading your epigraph no oh, sure that um that you have from The Call of the Wild and then talk a little bit about how the title, The Howling Ages, you know, applies to this book.
1: Sure. This is from Jack London's The Call of the Wild. When he moaned and sobbed, it was with the pain of living that was of old the pain of his wild fathers and the fear and mystery of the cold and dark that was to them fear and mystery and that he should be stirred by it marked the completeness with which he harked back through the ages of fire and roof to the raw beginnings of life in the howling ages. I don't I, I don't want to talk about it too much because I think some of the magic of a short book is a good setup with a, a quote like that and then letting the book unfold itself so that when the reader gets to the last sentence, they can see the link between that last sentence and that that epigraph. But I will say... I, As much as, as, much as what, a, what I wrote is current, you know, this is happening now, it, it's also not anything really new. And so what I like about that Jack London quote is, you know, there's a moment of revelation in the quote when the realization comes that all of this has happened before and now I'm being launched forward into this raw new beginning because I carry that, that weight forward with me, the Howling Ages.
0: Yeah, well, and there's a sense of real sense of desperation in Call of the Wild. You know,
1: That's they're, right. They're
0: the dogs running through right. the Alaska, pulling the sleds. And then and there's this real sense of desperation in both of, uh, especially Thomas and Lynn, the characters in your novel. There's this yearning and desire, but you know they're not really going to get what they want, uh, even though they've left their you know families behind to go to, to earn money and try to send money back home that there's a, um, a desperation to it, that uh, just desperation is a word that, that really comes to mind.
1: Uh, you know, you, you reach a certain level of desperation to decide, to make the decision to leave your family behind. It, you know, a situation had to be so desperate in Brazil for someone to pack up and leave their two kids in some, you know, favela in Sao Paulo to go to the Cape by themselves where they don't speak any English, to work in a restaurant, to send money... They're, you have to be desperate to do that, you know. But at the same time, you it's beautiful too that you can love someone that much to to make that type of a sacrifice. But that's where the heartbreak of it all comes in, you know. Well and that's you can't be around the people you love that much to make the sacrifice for. You know? Yeah. Well and it's you know, it's
0: very much, you know, a story that happens in America all the time. How many people send money back to Mexico every Absolutely. uh every week and every month and uh uh, that, that's certainly more common than uh, some people might realize. Um, another thing I think is fantastic about this novel, I mean, it's really a great novel of place. I mean, the place is very Thank specific
1: you. You.
0: to uh, the neighborhood and Kuwait and the desert. I mean, it's a novel of the city, but also the surrounding desert. And I mean, it's for me as a writer and a reader of fiction, place in fiction is really important. Yeah, it, it, novels and short stories that don't Ground me and show me where the, because, you know, a town in Georgia is different from a town in New Jersey and a town That's in right. Kuwait, and, and place is, you know, a huge part of who we are. Um, but this one does, I mean, both for the city. Um, actually, there's a, a paragraph on uh, page 11 I'd like you to read. This is a paragraph where he and Lynn are walking through the city.
1: Sure. We walked through Hawaii's nameless streets, past the rusting cars, the litter, the broken glass and the reeking dumpsters stormed by packs of starving cats. We walked past the mosque on Al Almuthana Street with shoes and neat rows on shelves by the door and went past the religious bookstore lit in a white hot light. Past the shisha cafe where the Egyptian men reclined on raised couches in off-white dish dashes, smoking and watching soccer. Past the barber's shop and the butcher's past the Syrian restaurant with plastic over the tablecloths and a broken fluorescent light dangling from a loose wire over the door, the empty concrete guts of destroyed buildings, empty like the dumpster cat's stomachs, or the half-built high-rises and office towers of downtown. We walked past the movement and the smoke, past the tired faces of our neighbors. They endured their days, I had noticed, instead of living through them. Yeah, thanks for reading
0: that. I mean, that's a really beautiful... Thank A uh, passage, and you know, much. I've never been to the Middle East or these cities, but I feel like I have. I mean, you really brought it well, through. And, I appreciate that.
1: Um, you know, you want to make. I I wanted to make Hawali a character in the book. You know, so so much of their interactions, these three characters' interactions in the novel, is dependent upon this neighborhood. You know, Thomas would not have met Lynn had they not lived there, and at the same time, um, the neighborhood was so beautiful in its mess that i wanted to to put it down on paper so other other people could see it the way i saw it you know so so few people have lived in the middle east from our culture and then come back to talk about it it was important for me to set it down so other people could see it yeah well it's, you, you did a really good job with
0: that and it's, uh, it, it comes alive and, and i think when place is handled really well in fiction it becomes a character all its own. That's right. It's a character with so. just the, uh, along with the characters in the book. The other, um, I talked about the scenes in the desert. Now, most of the, the novel takes place in the city, but there is a, an amazing scene um, about halfway through the book where he and the uh, police officer, Nasser, go out into the desert. And uh, I want you to read, uh, starting on the bottom of page 52, from, uh, the, How- We're reading from the Howling Ages here. Read that. Sure. That paragraph.
1: I climbed out of the truck and grabbed my bag. When I shut the door, it boomed, but the silence swallowed the sound. I could hear Nasser's feet moving through the sand, but there was nothing else. Absolute nothing. I stood still, not even moving my arms. The cold night air licked my neck and cheeks. I breathed, and my lungs sounded loud, out of place. For the first time in my life, I heard silence. The woods are filled with sounds. Birds, grasses rustling, tree creaks far-off river. But the desert has nothing, just the vast yawn of air reaching all the way up into the cold solitude of space. It was beautiful. I craned my head back and looked up into the stars. They stretched and stretched as far as I could see in all directions, silver dust sparkling between them in trails like smoke, depth achieved forever. I didn't want to move. I was afraid my walking would break the magic. I stood for a while just staring into space and the night and loving it in ways that I have n- that I will never have the right words to capture.
0: Yeah, it's a great description of the desert and uh, so you must uh, have you, gone out and did you camp in the desert when yeah, you were there?
1: Absolutely and you it, it's inescapable. You, the Kuwait city is very small and it sits right up against the the Arabian Gulf. but you can see the desert sort of almost from everywhere within the city. And, you know, you know, it's there. And being curious, you want to go see it. Uh, It's not it's best to go with someone who knows or, you know, can speak enough Arabic. If you don't, Um, it's, it's lawless. There's no police out there. They're still roaming Bedouin tribes. And, you know, outsiders are not looked too kindly upon at times. So. It has that that feel to it, but it's it's really a remarkable thing to see. You know you you get out and the sky is unlike anything you've ever experienced. Just the vastness. everything's flat. so the the sky opens up in ways you've you've never imagined, really. And then being a religious studies major in college, it dawned to me almost immediately. No wonder the three largest three of the largest religions in the world all were sort of born underneath that same sky in that same desert, you know. It's something special.
0: Yeah. I guess it, it seems from reading this and, you know, I, mean, I guess the closest I've gotten to the desert is, uh, watching Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. but the, these, these, cities are just little dots in these enormous sand. It's true. And, you know,
1: they're not that old. Kuwait's really, as a city is only maybe 45 years old or 50 years old. My, my students, their grandparents were camel herders effectively. And now they're driving Ferraris and that, that compression of time and experience, um, and the the smallness of the city, surrounded by that vast desert, really makes for something profound to to be a part of.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, the 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 s- setting really works well. I mean, you th- I think Thank of you. you know you know Faulkner and maybe J- Jim Harrison, where the the place really comes alive, and it, it does in this book. Thank you. Um, but also, I, I don't want to get you know too deep. I don't want to. Give away the uh, the plot here because no. there's some some major twists. Yeah, no, uh, we, we don't want to have spoil- – we don't need spoiler alerts because we want people you – know, you should pick up the book and enjoy it. But it's, it's got some really – some some twists that surprised me. There were twists to the point where I should have seen them coming, but I didn't. And uh, tell me a little bit – I mean that scene where they go into the desert and he and Nasser fire rifles the de- and he's just out there with a police officer and they've got all this high-power weaponry Uh, There's a lot of tension in those moments and, you know, definitely a lot of foreboding. Um, The reader knows something is coming. I'm not going to tell the the readers to be what that thing coming is, but uh, it's a lot of tension. And, you know, it has like a lot of the characteristics of a great crime novel. You know, something's going to happen. And and so maybe how did you approach like creating this plot? Did you know what was going to happen or how did the story that that develops uh, come to you?
1: Uh I did know what was gonna happen. Um, it was a matter then of just moving the characters sort of through that. you know once you have the essential ingredient, a novel to me is is putting these people in uncomfortable situations and watching sort of what happens and and you need something to push that to happen. So once the plot gets moving forward, it's a matter of of taking it towards its logical conclusion, you know, and there has to be, you have to keep pouring the tension onto the characters to to op- open them up. You know, otherwise no one wants to read it. I mean, at, at some point, fiction is entertaining and it is a type of entertainment. You do want to sit and be able to turn the page of a book. And of course, there's bad ways to do that and there's gratuitous ways to do that. Um, but I think the best, the best fiction... Pulls you into something that's moving and full of force, and and you want to see where it's going. Um, I very purposefully set out to write a tragedy, and I think tragedy is is being handled best in fiction now by wh- whom we're calling noir writers. Noir seems to be to be the closest thing we have toward a classic Greek tragedy. And, and I was interested in writing a classic Greek tragedy. And I think because of that, sort of those darker noir crime fiction aspects come out in the work, you know, um, without again, giving too much away about the plot, there's things that happen in the plot that are crimes, you know, and, and so it it, it does have that feel to it. And, And it's certainly those novels, you know, the great crime fiction novels or noir novels, are an influence. Uh, and that stuff's going to filter out in the work, but you know, if you set out to write a tragedy and, and you want to put your characters in uncomfortable situations and you have to create these things in the, in the work that allows them to do that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on one level, this
0: is, you know, a very literary novel with a great characterization and setting, but also, you know, the, the noir, the crime element certainly moves the, it's got a lot of narrative energy and a lot of literary, what, Literary fiction or what passes as literary fiction, not a lot happens. It doesn't have narrative, no, narrative energy.
1: Off. So much of it is show off. And, and and so much of it is being written by people that haven't done anything. They have to invariably write about characters that don't do anything. You know, I mean, the, the biggest book on – one of the biggest books of this year is, is a novel about a woman who doesn't get out of bed. You know, this is an amazing thing to have on our bestseller lists at a time where we are facing incredible problems as human beings but but this is what we're celebrating and it, and if that is satire or if it is a means of you know critiquing the culture at large it's it's a very easy way to do it to I, to just put someone in bed and have them do nothing i mean come on
0: and prefer that you do that in a sonnet and not ask me to read 250 yeah, pages of exactly. it exactly you know
1: the the points made we get right. it.
0: So you've got an interesting publisher. I think the last question I'll ask about the Howling Ages before we move on to sure. talk about some of your nonfiction. An interesting publisher, uh, yeah, Concord wonderful. Free Press. Wonderful, yeah. But they uh, have the Concord ePress. And so now yeah. Concord Free Press, they give books
1: away. This That's is. Right. T- tell us a little bit about the publisher and where people can find the book. Sure. The The Concord Free Press was started by Stona Fitch and his wife, Ann Fitch. And they their mission is to put free books out in the world to raise money for charities. So what they do is... 2 to 3 times a year they publish books in in limited editions 3 to 5000 copies and they are distributed to a network of independent bookshops who give them away to customers for free. And when you take one of these books, you agree to donate money to a person in need or a cause of your choosing. They don't st- you know they they're not dictating whom whom it is you don't donate to. You can donate how much however much you want. And you what you do is in the back of their free books you sign your name, and then you can get on another website and without identifying who you are, but you can say how much you gave and to whom. And it allows them to track how much money is being donated so they can receive grants and so forth to keep the, the publisher going. But through this model, they've been able to raise a substantial amount of money for uh, for people in need. So to keep the, the Free Press going, they, they started this secondary wing called the Concord ePress that re- releases both print books like mine, The Howling Ages, or other novels um, in, in both print and ebook forms. And those are for sale and a portion of my sales go to supporting the printing of, of the free books. It's, it's something publishing as a model, being a bookseller is publishing is in a weird state. And when I got to know Stona and I got to work with the press and see, see them in action, this is the type of thing that we need. We need, we need people shaking up the room a little bit. I'm tired of people talking about getting BMWs and retirement plans off of author's work. You know, this is a way, but it felt good to, to get in a little bit of a, you know, revolutionary, uh, publishing, publishing model, get money into to some needy people's hands and, and to have my book in a press that was able to, that loved it. You know, it was a, uh, it's a special place to be.
0: Yeah, well, Concord Free Press is definitely worth looking up. Now, I believe if uh, you work at um, Farley's Bookshop in That's New right. Hope,
1: yep. if people call or order from there, they can get a signed copy, right? That's right. right. Yep. Okay. You can call Farley's. It's 215-862-2452. I'm happy to sign books. We ship. Um, but you can call your local bookshop. They can order the books direct from the Concord Free Press, and you should encourage them to stock their free books, too, because, again, it's it's getting money to the needy.
0: William, I want to talk to you about uh, your nonfiction. Sure. And, uh, in 2014, you published uh, "The Hard Way." Actually, T- Tiger Bark Press published it, but it's your yep. your book of nonfiction. And it's it's a hard book to describe. Yeah, um,
1: the publisher still has a hard time trying to figure out. Yeah, tell, it doesn't fit any
0: into book. any normal uh, category. Maybe no, multiple perfect. categories, perfect. but you know, a cross between a memoir of sorts and a series of essays. But you know, it's got travel travel writing and, and recipes. So yep. uh, I think Kevin Catalano described it as a travel cookbook manifesto. Yeah. Was
1: it's that a, Kevin's? That was his description, yeah, right? Yeah, that was his description.
0: So how do you and describe
1: it? Manifesto is a good one. It, oops. The, uh, the publisher said, you know what? I don't know how to label this for the ISBN number. Because when you, when you get an ISBN, they want to know a genre. He said it's, it's philosophy, travel writing, food, and something else. It's, I, I was purposely trying to write a book that was uncategorizable. And it, if we're having trouble describing it, then my goal was accomplished. Yeah. Well, maybe the best thing to do is to read a little section for us. So we
0: talked about – there's a paragraph uh, in the – There's. I guess the book is three sections. It's onion it, soup. Gumbo and then a section on coffee. Yeah. And, so each section sort of centers around food or in the case of coffee, a beverage. But there's – a. Section in the gumbo, starting on page 41 there, that a, a
1: paragraph I'd like you to read. Sure. The, just the setup for the the listeners. At uh, this point in the, the essay, I'm describing my time living on the island of St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I had been hired to work as a lumberjack with the National Park Service. And I arrived down there uh, with no money. I was dead broke for a month and homeless. That first night I walked around Cruise Bay. Mitsubishi Jeeps rolled by, honking at people on the sidewalk. West Indian girls in tiny jean shorts leaned into the ordering window of a Kalaloo shack and their asses looked perfect. Gaunt, bearded men sat on the curbs and docks. They stared, smoked, and talked. Drunk tourists with boiled lobster skin weaved from one bar to the next. I sat on a baseball field's bleachers and watched the night sky open itself over the water. I was anxious and worried and afraid of how I would make it through four weeks without shelter or food. The two small day packs I had with me, one with blankets for a bedroll and the other with clothes and a copy of Plato's Republic, were not much comfort. But there I sat on cold metal bleachers in a warm Caribbean night, the air like black water, the breeze onshore and cool and the dry rattling sounds of the palm trees becoming familiar— where in the distance cars spoke a language of horns and stops and grilled food smoke wove over their moving hoods and across the sidewalks into the dark hollows between buildings. The forest around me was alive with new noises, a series of squeaks and beeps and chirps and chatterings of things I could not name but needed to. Volcanic ash from an eruption on Martinique wafted down over everything, funereal and gray. I walked through this and climbed onto the top of a dumpster in the Park Service maintenance maintenance yard's lot. I spread my blankets out and folded them in thirds and thirds again to make a sleeping bag. I bunched the day's clothes in the empty backpack and made a pillow. I set my watch alarm, and I lay there, homeless and hungry with my face to the stars in supplication, and I breathed in, and I exhaled, and I fell asleep. I starved. Uh, Thanks for
0: reading that. Yeah. So it makes me think that, I mean, you've worked a lot of different, you work as a farmhand now, you work as a bookseller, but clearly you worked as a lumberjack. Yep. Um, Yep. I think these jobs obviously inform a lot of your writing. I mean, you worked as a teacher, which informed the novel Howling Ages. So tell me about how the work you've done uh, and the the need to work, you know, informs informs your writing. Well,
1: at some point I think you decide as a writer – you realize you have to do this. You have to tell a story. You have to write a poem. There's there's no way to avoid it. It's it's a necessity. And and when you realize that, you then try and figure out how am I going to do it? You you obviously can't write because what you're putting down on the page is so far removed from your your writer heroes. You know, there's they're so much better than you. How do they get that far? And, and and how do I close that gap between me and them? So I didn't, when I set out to learn, to learn how to write, you know, truly, I didn't understand. I didn't know that there were things like graduate writing programs where you could go and pay and, and find a mentor and so forth. My writer heroes were people whom had gone out into the world and done things. I grew up in the suburbs where not much happened. And I, I thought naturally, well, if I am going to write, I should have things to write about. And so I, I, I purposely left high school when I was 18 to go to college, but to never come back to Pennsylvania, um, which has since proven false. It's where I live now. But, but I I spent a long time, you know, more than 10 years moving all over the place, Colorado twice, Cape Cod, the Caribbean, Kuwait, Mexico, just all over. And, And moving constantly within those places, trying to see as much as I could and, and a lot of it was dictated by work. You know, I needed to to earn money. Um, and so I just sought jobs in, in other places. And some of it was just happenstance. I I met a girl. We decided to move in together on the Cape two months after we met. That's where she was from. You know, if a beautiful woman says to you, let's go live on the beach, you don't say no. You know, so some of it just happened. Um, it was like how I got the job in the Caribbean. I, I saw the posting on the federal you know, usajobs.gov. It's the federal government's website. It said labor, U.S. Virgin Islands. Why would you not apply to that? I mean, you know, you have to apply to that job. So some of it, so again, some of it was happenstance. Some of it was very, very planned. You know, I, I really wanted to not work in a real estate office or a bank or something like that, like so many of my friends were doing. Um, and I had no money. My parents weren't going to bankroll me you know they had no money so i had to work um and you you build up skills along the way once you can work a chainsaw you find you can get farm work pretty quickly you know and once you get farm work you can do a lot of other things too so necessity really well it also seems like it might be a good
0: lifestyle for a writer because so many like myself you know i edit you know, a magazine, a magazine for university, and you know, teach classes and do sorts of other things, which burns up a lot of your writing energy. Where that's right, you know, maybe doing physical
1: work or doing other things uh, can not it's, tire out the. It's language. true. It's true. When I was a public school teacher, um, I did not write as much as I do now. I, I was, you know, you, you get to school at six o'clock in the morning. I was coaching, you know, running school clubs, so I'm not getting home until eight o'clock at night. And then I've got papers to grade. My brain was just fired, you know, totally, totally fried. Um, the work that I do now, farming is, is physically intense. It's physically, it's hugely demanding. Um, and, and it is the most intellectually challenging job I've had. The, the complexities of a farm on a day-to-day basis are, it, it's too often labeled as brute labor. And I think most of America looks at looks down upon manual work as just being this brutish, mindless thing that people whom aren't educated do. But the thing most people don't realize is that, take farming, you know, 1% of Americans work in agriculture, but we feed everybody. So all of the people whom look down upon farmers for being sort of you know, it's just manual labor, well, but you're still dependent upon my work in order for you to survive. You know, you you can't plumb your own home, you can't wire your own, you can't build your own furniture. And so these things that we look down upon um are hugely skilled crafts and trades and they require a an intense intelligence in order to carry it out successfully. So this is to say that, you know, the work I'm doing now farming is is hugely intellectually rewarding and and very challenging, but a lot of it, once you get to a certain point is dependent upon muscle memory. So there's certain things like if I'm picking strawberries or if I'm out cutting a tree, I'm not necessarily thinking or using my brain in the same way you are teaching. And I, it's a lot of muscle memory. And so I can, I can drift and I can spend a day or an afternoon sometimes in my own head daydreaming while getting other things done. And it's it's hugely beneficial. Plus well, I work alone, so I, I have no one else to talk to. You know, it's just me. Well, you've inspired me. I think in my
0: next life I'm going to try to be a farmer or something. Some, oh, something I ho- else. I hope you enjoy poverty. <laughs> um, so you know, you also edited the anthology, Stray Dogs, Writing from the Other America. Sure. And uh, that had like a really interesting mix of, of writers in that And, in and that so book.
1: many I wasn't even able to get. I was under a huge time crunch to get that book in. Um, So there, yeah, there's, there's a wonderful selection of writers in there, but there's like 50 writers I couldn't get and I didn't have the time to get them. But who are some of the the big names in there? And I know like you have like like Jason Isbell has a piece in there. yeah, Sure. uh,
0: So some songwriters as well.
1: The the idea behind the book was to put together, um, really, I was inspired by these three anthologies, the outlaw Bible Anthologies, I don't know if you've ever seen them. The Outlaw Bible to American Literature, the Outlaw Bible to American Essays, and the Outlaw Bible to American Poetry. Alan Kaufman is the editor. These these things are brilliant, brilliant. And the Outlaw Bible to American Poetry in particular is just a remarkable collection of writing. Um, there was a need, um, I thought, to, to put out a book that collected a lot of what work, we would call like working-class writers or, or people whom, whom were writing about this America that the mainstream publishers aren't necessarily representing. But a lot of that writing isn't happening in poetry or fiction. It's happening, you know, songwriting. Um, it's happening in, in hip hop and rap music. It's happening all over the place. So I was trying to get people from all these different walks of life to come together in one spot because I wanted them to know about each other too. Jason Isabel, I thought, should know about. Mark Turcott is in the book. He's a phenomenal poet um, his, his book, Exploding Chippewas, should be required reading. You know, Mark Turcott and and Jason Isbell need to know about each other. So I thought to put them together. But yeah, there's there's Jason Isbell, there's Dicky Betts from the Almond Brothers band, um, Sherman Alexie, uh, Eric Miles Williamson, you know, Daniel Woodrell. There's there's quite a few heavy hitters in there. I was I was honored that they all uh, answered the call in a in a positive sense when I when I asked. Yeah, and that was published what 2016. So I that's believe still so, available. Yeah, 2016, 2015. Yeah, it's still in print, and there's there's actually a companion book to it that was put out by a brilliant, brilliant young literary critic named Daniel Mendoza. It's also called Stray Dogs, but it's it's a collection of essays with, a, a collection of interviews with some of the writers that are in the anthology I put together, and some other ones that he found. Uh, they're they're sort of craft life essays, uh, all all. Sort of focused on the working class aspect of America, okay. um, and, and both are by the same publisher, Down and Out Books in Florida. Okay, that's Stray Dogs, writing from the other America. So, I mean, obviously,
0: cl- class is a big issue in that book, and I think yep. it's a, an issue. And I mean, class clearly in the Howling Ages is an issue. So, talk a little bit. And, and, and I know one of the book reviews you wrote for the American Book Review. You talk about we publishers don't publish a lot of thing about the pressure on people's wallets, no, and the, they don't and want the class. To.
1: This is the big. This is the big bugaboo, and. You know, no one wants to talk about this in America. It's very easy to talk about race and identity issues and so forth. And it's easy because the dialogue in American culture has has built itself to a point where by pitching battles between different races or different conceptions of identity, we don't talk about class. And so, you know, that's a very easy way for the ruling the ruling elite to prevent the working class f- from organizing. You know. Again, if if one percent of America feeds everybody else, it would seem then that farmers are the most powerful people in this country and not the politicians. And yet we're some of the poorest people in the country. That seems to be crazy to me. If if farmers organized and decided to stop growing food for the politicians, you know, you begin upending these power structures. I I don't think class, if people were to start publishing books that were more openly representative of how people are living today, you know, you'd upend the entire conception of how American capitalism is being practiced, you know, and, and they don't want to do that. There's a lot of people making a lot of money off people's books, you know, uh, that, Sarah Smarsh's book Heartland came out this year that, and it was nominated for national book award. It's her, it's her memoir of growing up absolutely dirt poor in Kansas to a farming family. It's the book is amazing um, that it was published in a major press and garnered as much attention as it has is, is mind boggling to me because she is openly talking about things no one wants to talk about in public, you know, class class is the big issue. And I think, when we address it, when you begin putting it into literature, people can be- begin seeing sort of how these structures have been imposed upon them and how they're more in control than they think they are. You've worked
0: at Farley's Bookshop for 10 years now yep. and um, you've been a bookseller. So you've seen a lot of books come and go. What, what right. have you learned about you know, literature there and publishing? And, and uh, tell us about selling books and what you've learned from it.
1: Well, but you know, I'll, I'll tell you what I told some graduate students I spoke to uh, in January. There, you you see trends; these just things explode and then and then they die, and you never hear these books again. They have like a two week shelf life. But I but I think a lot about Moby Dick. See, when Moby Dick was published, it was a commercial flop; it bombed, and it bombed so badly that that Melville's family thought. He was crazy. And his wife's family tried divorcing him from her. You know, this is at a time where divorce did not happen. Um, He ended up penniless working as like a postal inspector in New York City. His books were forgotten. But what happens, you know, in the 20s, late 20s, people begin writing about Moby Dick again, particularly professors. And they had realized what this book was. And, you know, we all know Moby Dick and, you know, the question becomes, well, well, who originally published Moby Dick? I mean, I have no idea. I don't, but I don't know if you do. I don't. I, you I know. don't. We don't know. But what matters is that we know what Moby Dick is. So h- how does that happen? How does Melville, Melville die, you know, before the end of the, the 19th century? And there's that, that huge gap of time before the great disc- rediscovery of his work. How does, how does Moby Dick stay alive? And it's, it's people buying the book and reading it and, and falling in love with it and then handing it to somebody else and saying, you have to read this. And it, it lives, and it, it's still living because that's what happens. And so what I've seen is that's, that's really how books are sold. Twitter doesn't matter. Trends don't matter. If, if the book is good enough and, and it's written from a place that's true enough, Then it will catch with somebody and then that person will fall in love with it. And they, it doesn't matter if it's tragedy, you know, you can write a tragedy. We still read things like Hamlet, you know, these are beautiful things and you, you fall in love with them. And then you, you're hanging out one day with somebody who, you know, is going to love that same thing in the same way that you did. And so you pass it to them. And that's how these things live. That's, that's book selling to me. You know that's, that's what a good independent bookshop does. That's why an algorithm on Amazon can never replace a, a bookseller. You know, it, it can't replace a librarian. That's, this is how books move, and that's how they last. It's by the book first being of, of substance and weight, and then getting into someone's hands and that person then putting it in someone else's hands.
0: All right. Well, I think maybe to, uh, to wrap this up, I wanted to ask you what would be a recommendation? What's some, you see a lot of books sure. and, re- and read a great deal. What's something new or a, uh, you know, a book that maybe has been forgotten. There's so many great books that have been forgotten that are, that are out there to read as sure, well. So what are some sure. things that you recommend for us?
1: Well, I love the, uh, the writer Stephen Bodio's works. He, he put out a new novel. Well, it's his only novel, Tiger Country this year. I and mean, he mostly writes nonfiction, but his book, um, Currencia about, he, he met a woman in Boston. They fall in love and they end up living in New Mexico together. He still lives in this tiny, tiny town Magdalena, in New Mexico. And it, it's a memoir about him meeting this woman and them finding this little town. It it's one of the most beautiful books I think written in the last 40 years. Um, maybe more. It it's a wonder wonderful book. Clark City Press which was originally owned by um Russell Chatham who painted all the covers of these Jim Harrison books. Um
0: he, so, was,
1: he was the one that put it out originally. Stephen Bodio Currencia. Currencia. That's that's one that I think everyone's got to got to have in their shelf. It's Q U E R E N C I A. A Currencia is the the space in the bull ring where the the matador feels safe. Yeah, uh, this sort of turf he's he's cut out for himself. So that, that's a good bit of nonfiction. Sarah Smarsh's book that I, I talked about earlier, Heartland was phenomenal. Uh, and and really essential reading. Um what's her last name? Smarsh? Smarsh. S M A R S H. She wrote some brilliant articles on the 2016 election for The Guardian. That's how I found her name. Oh, okay. Brilliant, brilliant reportage. She's she's like an old school journalist, but young. Uh, but she she has that old school sort of approach. Um, oh, there's so many fiction, George Pelicanus's last novel I thought was, was stunning. I mean, he's, he's famous to me. I mean, he, he wrote for the wire, he wrote for Treme, um, but he, he seems to not garner the same attention that like Dennis Lehane and other, other crime fiction novelists do or James Lee Burke or something, but Pelicanus is like this wonderful gem that more people need to read. And The Man Who Came Uptown was his novel from this year. It a, and it's, it's a book lover's book. There's a great subplot to the book dealing with a man just released from prison whom fell in love with reading while in prison. And it, it's there's some great book recommendations tucked within the book. That's a, that's a wonderful novel that came out this year. Okay.
0: Well, well thank you for that. I mean, the one thing I think I really like about literature is there's so much out there you can never you know it's you're like trying to drink it's. the ocean there's so much good stuff there and uh, you've got to look for it i mean you, you got to look beyond the
1: best sellers uh, well, that you right. see you know you've in cultivate a relationship with your booksellers go to your local libraries you know podcasts like this things things where people are talking about books that you're not seeing on the bestseller list are, are gold because that's where you're going to find books you want to steal from libraries you know
0: that's right that's right so uh, and The Howling The Howling Ages is one that you should certainly check out so it's uh, a great new novel just out since October so uh, go to your local bookstore or find one and uh, I think you'll enjoy it so William thank you for joining us here on uh, Writer's Latitude it's been a lot of fun appreciate it